All right, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua. For those of you who are new, we are working our way through the book of Joshua here on Sunday morning at Calvary. And yes, of course, we're looking at it historically as a record of Israel's conquest of the promised land. But according to Paul, he said that the things that were written in the Old Testament were written for our learning as New Testament believers. And so we are looking at the book also spiritually as a spiritual instruction manual on victorious Christian living. Now we are are currently in a section that covers chapters 3 and 4. And as we have already said, when we come to chapters 3 and 4, we see that one life is about to end and another is about to begin. The people of God are finally leaving the wilderness behind them and are about to enter into the promised land and with it, a whole new era in their relationship with God and a whole new era in their service for God. As we've already said many times, the wilderness spiritually represents the life of the flesh. The wilderness is when somebody gets saved. Egypt is a type of the world. It signifies, you know, before we got saved. And then, of course, as God led them out of Egypt with the blood of the lamb into the wilderness, it signified that they were now saved. But immature believers, like we all are once we get saved, And the wilderness spiritually, though, represents that place of immaturity. It's a place of unbelief, murmuring often and complaining. Canaan, of course, represents the life of the Spirit, God's perfect will for His people's life, to walk in the Spirit. The life of the Spirit is a life of blessing. It's a life of victory and abundance. Now, this transformation was 40 years in coming. I mean, it took 40 years for them to transition out of the wilderness into the promised land. Now, that was not God's fault, by the way. God wanted to lead them right into the promised land after he brought them out of Egypt. They were only supposed to make a short stopover in the wilderness while he gave them the plans for the tabernacle, established the priesthood, gave them his laws, and so on. And then he wanted to bring them right into the promised land. The Bible clearly says it was an 11-day journey from Horeb, Mount Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea, the border of the promised land. Well, what happened was God brought them to the promised land. They sent in the 12 spies. Ten of them brought back an evil report. Once they scoped out the land, they said, wow, it's a good land, but man, there are giants in the land. We can't go up against those guys. We're no match for them. We need to go back to Egypt. And the other two spies were Joshua and Caleb. And they said, wait a minute. Our God is bigger than these guys. God's given us that land. He's promises to us. It's ours. Let's go in and take it. Of course, the people listened to the ten evil spies and wanted to appoint themselves a leader to take them back to Egypt. And God says, because you thought I was going to lead you out here to die, because you didn't trust me, it would not walk by faith against the giants in the land that I promised you. You know what? This generation of adults who wouldn't enter in, you're not going to enter in now. You're going to be driven back out into the wilderness where you're going to wander for 40 years. Until this generation dies off and your children shall inherit this good land. And so it took them 40 years to transition from the wilderness into the promised land. But it also mirrors in our own Christian lives the all too often prolonged transformation that we make and the time that we take to move from immaturity into the mature life of the Spirit. Look, the time it takes you To move from the wilderness in your own Christian life into the life of the Spirit is totally and entirely up to you. 
When it comes to physical growth, we have no control over that. We grow at the rate our body grows at. Spiritual growth, we have total control over. We can grow as fast as we want. And I have seen some Christians in two years eclipse Christians that have been saved for 20 years. Because they're hungry for the word. They're at study all the time. They're in ministry. They're, they're wanting to do all that God wants them to do. And God is blessing and God is growing them. Fruit is coming. Again, it's up to us to decide how long we're going to spend in the wilderness. And then how long it's going to take us to get into the life of the spirit. But let me just encourage you not to do what a lot of Christians are doing today. And that is this. They get saved and come out of Egypt, you might say. And they just want to live in the wilderness their whole life. They come into the wilderness and they want to just camp there and stay there the rest of their lives. Why? Well, there's a few reasons for that. The first is carnality. Many Christians do not want to make a full break from the world once they get saved. Because they still desire what the world has to offer. So you think about it. Egypt represents the world, our old life, before we got saved. Canaan, well, that represents God's perfect will for our lives as believers. A life of obedience and surrender, etc., What's in between Egypt and Canaan? The wilderness. And if you want to hang on to both, where are you going to camp? You're going to camp in the mid, at the midpoint, right? You're going to camp in the wilderness, and you're going to try to hold on to the world with one arm and to the Lord with the other. You're going to try to serve two masters. But what did Jesus say with regard to that? It is what? Impossible. You cannot serve two masters. You will ultimately serve one or the other, but not both. And let me put it to you this way. If it's a competition between the world and walking in the Spirit, guess who's going to lose every time? Because the world promises you instant gratification. The world is going to give you what you want right now to make you happy. God says, look, if you're going to follow me and walk in the Spirit, you're going to have to defer a lot of your happiness and joy until heaven. Because right now you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be, you know, you're going to have hardship. It's not easy walking in the Spirit. You're going to have enemies. Jesus said the world loved you you would, because you're of the world. But they've hated me. They're going to hate you also. The second reason many Christians decide to live in the wilderness, as opposed to entering into their own personal promised land of blessing and victory in their own life, is again, and I just touched on it, because that life is a life of faith, and it's not easy to live by faith. In fact, it's very difficult. Look, it's much easier to play it safe and hang out in the wilderness. All right where, you know, there are very few challenges that require faith, and where a person, a Christian, can control their lives as opposed to turning complete control of their life over to God. See, the life of the Spirit, guys, as we've already said, is a life of total surrender. When you talk about walking in the Spirit, walking in God's perfect will for your life, guess what? It's all about you letting go and letting God take over. See, the problem is, and here's a concept that many Christians have, you know, when they get saved and they say things like, well, Jesus is my co-pilot. You know, what that says to me is I want to be in the driver's seat, but I want Jesus next to me to bless every direction and every road I want to go down. If that's where you are, guess what? You're going to be driving around that wilderness for a long time. Because as long as you're in the driver's seat, you're never going to enter the life of the Spirit. And in fact, don't even let Jesus sit in the driver's seat and you sit next to him and be his co-pilot. Get in the back seat. Get in the trunk. Let him direct you and take you where he wants you to go. Stop interfering with what he wants to do in your life. Just submit to it. Oh, but I'm scared. Well, what if he doesn't lead me where I want to go? Maybe he won't. But where he leads is going to be better. You have to trust him, though. 
Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Well, that's why you stay in the wilderness. But as I said, the, the wilderness life is a life of compromise, complacency, and comfort, as opposed to the life of the Spirit, which is a life of obedience, surrender, commitment, and faith. Of course, as I've already said, walking in the Spirit every day is not an easy life. God never said it would be. Where do we ever get this idea that if I walk with God, things are going to be great all the time? The life of the Spirit is the most blessed life there is. It's not without its struggles. When they entered into the Promised Land, they had many struggles against enemies. I mean, the enemy just just didn't lay down and say, okay, well, you're here, take over. They fought the, the children of Israel. Now, God promised the children of Israel the victory. But they still had to fight many battles. Hey, we're going to have many struggles and many battles in our Christian lives as we walk in the Spirit. But this idea that people have that well, if we're really doing this Christianity thing right, it's going to be nothing but blue skies and primrose paths and blessings and boy, it's going to be and any bad stuff. That's the devil, and we'll just we'll just you know in Jesus' name bind all of that. I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible teaches. Look, it would have been a lot easier for Israel to stay camped in the wilderness in the comfort of their tents and to break camp and step out in faith to fight giants. But as we've already pointed out, great things only happen when God's people leave the comfort of their tents, their homes, their churches, their comfort zones, is what I'm getting at, and step out in faith to claim new territory for the Lord. Now, let me just say this. Sometimes... It's not carnality or complacency that keeps Christians in the wilderness. Sometimes, I think oftentimes, it's the fear of thinking that, for them at least, there is nothing more that God wants to do with their lives. And those feelings are fueled by the devil's condemnation. Here's what it looks like. What makes you think God can use you? What makes you think you're worthy? of God using you for anything. You are such a mess up. You are always blowing it, you know? I mean, why in the world would God ever want to use somebody like you? See, that's the condemnation of the devil, right? And we listen to that oftentimes. And we start to think, yeah, why would I think God would want to use me for anything more than what I'm doing for him right now, which is nothing, basically? And because of it, I think a lot of Christians remain in the wilderness, not because they want to, but because they just don't think they're worthy to enter the promised land in their walk. How sad. The promised land is a land of grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. God said, my eyes go to and fro about the face of the whole earth looking for who? Perfect people? Worthy people to use for my glory? Looking for those whose hearts are loyal to me that I might show myself strong through. It's never really about ability. It's about availability. And how much you love the Lord and want to be used by him. You know, there's a, a new Christian song. I think it's new. I, I just started hearing it. But there's a new Christian song that's become popular lately. And I think it's become popular because it kind of puts the music, what I believe a lot of Christians are feeling in their hearts, although they don't always say it. It's called Sometimes by Matt Brower. And the chorus goes like this. When it feels like there's nothing left, it feels like this is as good as it gets. It feels that way sometimes. So let's take a second and catch our breath and realize this isn't over yet. It just feels that way sometimes. See, the devil wants you to feel 
that this is as good as it gets, folks. And let's be honest, right now, a lot of Christians are struggling. The devil is ramping up things. He knows his time is short. He is ramping up the oppression. He is ramping up the attacks. He's got a cloud of discouragement and depression even hanging over the people of God in many respects. There's a lot of Christians, if they were honest, they would tell you, I'm feeling totally empty and dry and discouraged. I have no joy. I don't, I don't even think God loves me anymore. And the devil comes right along to, to kind of emphasize all that by whispering in the ear, that's right. And for you, this is as good as it gets. Why do you think God should ever do more in your life than what he's doing? You don't deserve God to do anymore. You're a terrible excuse for a Christian. So this is all that you're going to get. This is as good as it gets, pal. And you know what happens? Christians that listen to that begin to think, you know what, this is, I'm miserable and empty because, you know what, God doesn't love me anymore. And you know what? Fine. God doesn't love me, then you know what, I don't love him either. I'm going to go back to the world. See, that's what the devil wants. That's why he lies to us. Make, trying to get us to think that God is against us because we're not measuring up to some level of holiness or perfection, you know, that God requires before he'll even begin to use us. Look, the promised land was a place of God's blessing, fruitfulness, victory. It was the land of grace, guys. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. We don't deserve anything from the Lord. But the devil wants to make us think that we have to earn God's love and favor. And when we don't measure up and we go through difficult times like many are going through, it's because, well, we're just miserable failures and God is done with us. And Satan tries to tell us that because he wants us to go back to the world instead of moving forward into the life of the Spirit. Now, as we've been working our way through chapters 3 and now today into 4, we have entitled this section, Crossing into the Resurrection Life. And I want you to understand once more that entering into the life of the Spirit, or as some have called the resurrection life, is something that can only be entered into by faith. Because it's a supernatural life. I really think that God was trying to communicate in part to his people that crossing into the promised land was going to be only accomplished through God's power through their faith. As we've already said, at this time of the year where they were camped, the Jordan River, because of the snows that were melting on the top of Mount Hermon, running into the Jordan River uh, to the north, well, it turned the Jordan River in springtime into a swollen, raging white water rapid, probably a mile wide. Who knows how many feet deep? And God brought them to the shores of the Jordan River and made them camp there for three days looking at this thing. Because I think God in part was telling them, take a good look here. This is an obstacle that you are not going to get through or get across or get over or around without me. You try to take your livestock and little ones through that, many people are going to die. God wanted to exhaust them of their own self-effort like he wants to exhaust us of our own self-effort. Let me give you one more why we stay in the wilderness so long sometimes. Because we're trying in the energy of our own flesh to enter into the life of the Spirit, and you can't do it that way. If I just work hard enough, I'll go to church four times a week. I'll study the Bible two hours a day. God bless you. I'd love to see you at church four times a week. I'd love you to study the Bible two hours a day. That is not going to get you in the life of the Spirit. It's a life of faith. You have to enter in by faith. And after they waited three days, then God said, okay, 
All right? Now, priests, take the Ark of the Covenant, put it on your shoulders, march a half a mile ahead of the people, and when you walk into the Jordan River, I'm going to work a miracle. Forty years earlier, under Moses, when, they, when God parted the Red Sea, God parted the Red Sea first, and then they walked through on dry ground. Forty years later, God says, no, now you're going to have to get your feet wet before I work a miracle. Why? As we've already said, when they came out of Egypt, they were brand new as the people of God. I'm talking brand new. Kindergarten spiritual stuff, spiritually speaking. Forty years has passed. This generation has seen the faithfulness of God every single day in bringing food from heaven, water from the rock, shade from the blazing sun, fire at night to give them warmth and light. I mean, their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes probably didn't wear out. God took care of them every day to train them and teach them that they could depend on him for everything. And so God says, you know what, you guys are a lot older than they were. That was kindergarten. This is graduate school. Now I want you to take a step in faith, and I want you to get your feet wet, as we would say in our vernacular. And so that's what they did. As the priests with the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders marched into the Jordan, suddenly God worked a miracle 30 miles upstream at Adam. He stopped the water. It raised up like a wall, and all the water from that point drained right into the Dead Sea. God dried the ground immediately, and all the people began to walk over the bed of the Jordan River on dry ground until the whole nation had crossed over. Forty years earlier, when they went through the Red Sea, that was a form of baptism. Not really water baptism, although water baptism signified it. It signified the baptism that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we've all been baptized into one body. That's not water baptism. That's the baptism of salvation. The instant you put your faith in Christ, you are taken by the Spirit, placed or immersed into the body of Christ. Baptism means to immerse. They were saved. But this is a different baptism. This is a baptism that precedes the service and the warfare they were going to enter into against the enemy in the promised land. What did Jesus say this baptism was? He said, go back to Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you're going to receive the dynamic power to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So right here, this Jordan crossing signifies another kind of baptism. But this one is not the baptism of salvation. It's the baptism of service, or what we would call the baptism with the Holy Spirit, an empowering for the work that God was wanting to do through them from this point on. Now, let me just say this, as we have kind of built the last four messages around what we have called the preparation for entering into the life of the Spirit. Yes, it's by faith, but there are some things that we need to do also. We've listed these, and I'm not going to go through and explain them again, but they come out of this section, end of chapter 2, last few verses, chapter 3, and into chapter 4. There are six principles that we need to do to prepare for the life of the Spirit. We need to Cling to God's promises. Secondly, we need to depend on God's power. Thirdly, we need to be led by God's word. Not our feelings, the word of God. Fourth, we need to sanctify ourselves. We looked at what that meant last time. And then, of course, we need to finally then step out in faith. And we've talked about that already. How they stepped out in faith and God worked a miracle.
but only after God told them, okay, now step out in faith. Sometimes people step out in faith and God's not directing. That's a problem. I was reading about one pastor in South Africa who wanted to show his people that he was a man of faith. And so he told them, he gathered his church on the shores of this estuary that, that flowed into a bigger body of water. But he said, stand here, all you folks. I'm going to walk on water. I'm a man of faith. And I believe if I have enough faith, I can walk on water. Now, it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. He walked into the water, it overwhelmed him, and he drowned. You know, make sure that God's... Now, do we know that God wants us to step out in faith into the life of the Spirit? Of course. We've already talked about that. But, you know, once you cross into the life of the Spirit, you still got to live by faith. You know, the just shall live by faith, not just get saved by faith, shall live by faith. Make sure God's in these steps of faith. Because, I mean, not that you would do something boneheaded like that and, you know, uh, try to walk on water or something like that. I hope you wouldn't. But there's a lot of other things you could do in the name of faith quote-unquote, that God's not leading you to do. Well, all right, the sixth one, and what we're going to look at today, is that you need to then, after you sanctify yourself, step out in faith, you need to reckon the old life dead. Reckon the old life dead. Now, let me just back up. Let me just rewind just a little bit. Before they crossed over, as we said, they camped for three days looking at that Jordan River. And this is before God told them what he was going to do. At this point, they're just looking at this thing going, what in the world? I mean, they can see the promised land beyond the Jordan. Here they were on the wilderness side of the Jordan thinking, how are we going to ever get across this thing? We can see the promised land, but we can't reach it. See, the only thing standing between them and the promised land was the Jordan River. And we've already talked about how that, practically speaking, the Jordan could represent anything standing in our way from entering into all the fullness that God wants to give to us. You might say our personal Canaan or promised land. Every one of us has a path that God wants to lead us down. I believe God has got a personal path for each of our lives. If you will seek him, he will reveal that path to you step by step. David said, you know, lead me in the right path, or the Lord leads me in the right paths. Paul said in Acts 20, verse 24, I want to finish the course, my path, my ministry that God has laid out for me. But every once in a while as you are seeking to walk the path, and it's ministry, it's different things, to walk the path that God has chosen for your life, every once in a while there's going to be an obstacle that's going to stand there to try to keep you from going on. It takes many different forms, guys. Sometimes it's just the fear of trusting God completely, as we've said. Fear keeps a lot of Christians from moving forward. Because the life of the Spirit is the life of faith. Walking by faith is often not easy, especially because the more you walk with God by faith, the bigger the obstacles get. As your faith grows, he tests it all the more with bigger obstacles. And so it requires more faith. It gets a little scarier to keep walking with God as new challenges arise, new obstacles. You know God's telling you to go forward, but there's always something standing in the way. It could be fear of going any further, trusting God with all your heart. It could be carnality, as we have said, complacency, selfishness, pride, and unforgiving heart. It could be different things. But spiritually speaking, and we did bring this out too, spiritually speaking, there was another reason why God made them wait there by the Jordan River for three days before bringing them through it into the land of Canaan. Now, don't lose me. I'm going to tell you what it is, and at first you're going to go, I can't see it. Boy, you're reaching on this one. Well, let me show you what I'm talking about. I believe those three days that they waited there before God parted the Jordan River and led them into Canaan, I believe those three days correspond spiritually 
to the three days that Jesus Christ was dead and buried in the tomb before he rose from the dead. And I believe the Holy Spirit is teaching us this principle right here. He's teaching us that death, and in our case it's the death of self, always precedes the resurrection life, which is what Canaan represents. We could say it this way, that Calvary always precedes Resurrection Sunday, right? And what precedes Calvary? Well, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus said, Not my will, but thy will be done. And then he went to the cross and died before he could ever be raised again in resurrection power and life. We have to die to self before we can ever really enter into that resurrection life. And before we're going to die to self, guys, we have to come to a place where it says, not my will, but thy will be done, or else we're not going to do it. See, that's the language of Canaan, not my will, but thy will be done. The language of the wilderness is not your will, but my will be done. Lord, this is what I want. Now, come on. Come on now. You know, if you love me, you'll do this for me. And if you don't, murmuring and complaining and griping and so on and so forth that a lot of Christians do. So this is an important principle, that death always precedes the resurrection life which Canaan represents. Now, for this, I want you to turn to chapter 4, and I want to just read the first nine verses. It says in verse 1, And it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. And Joshua called the twelve men whom he appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. Skip over to the middle of verse 7. And these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. Well, they were there to the day of the writing of Joshua. They might still be there. We don't know. Let me, let me show you what's going on here. The 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes, that Joshua set up, it doesn't say so specifically, but many commentators believe what's going on is Joshua took 12 stones from the wilderness side of the Jordan, and he set them up on the river bank, excuse me, riverbed of the Jordan River while the waters had been held back by God. He put those 12 stones from the wilderness side of the Jordan in the Jordan River, and then these 12 guys picked up 12 stones from the Jordan Riverbed and brought them and set them up on the promised land side of the Jordan River. What was going on there? Well, I believe spiritually the Holy Spirit was telling us that the stones that Joshua took from the wilderness side of the Jordan, what does the wilderness represent? Carnality, complaining, murmuring, the self-life, right? He brought those stones over, put them into the Jordan Riverbed because it signified that that life was now dead and buried. And then, of course, the 12 guys who set up stones 
from the Jordan River on the promised land side symbolized that out of death came new life, resurrection life. In fact, to use the New Testament terms, this is what some have called the crucified life. Remember what Paul the Apostle said in Galatians 2.20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But Paul went on to explain a little more about how we enter this crucified or resurrection life in Romans chapter 6, which I'd like you to turn there. Crucified life. Resurrection life. Sounds great. Love, love to be involved in that. What's involved? Can you explain it more thoroughly? Yes. Because in Romans chapter 6, Paul does that very thing. In Romans 6, Paul the Apostle referred to this life as the life that reckons the old life dead. In fact, he said in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you're from the South, the word reckon, I reckon, means I guess or I suppose. But you see, that's not the meaning here. Not to pick anybody from the South. Love the folks from the South. But that's, you know, if you're from the South, reckon means I guess or I suppose. But that's not the meaning here. The word in the Greek translated reckon is the word legizomai. It's a word that's used 41 times in the New Testament, 19 times in the book of Romans, and a number of those times in chapter 4 where it is translated count and account. But perhaps the best translation of that Greek word is impute, which was an accounting term meaning to put to one's account. To reckon means to put to your account. It simply means to believe that what God says in his word is really true in your life. It's a settled fact. It's a settled, if God says it in his word, that he has done something for the believer, and you're a Christian, you can say, Lord, I received that. I reckon that to my account. Because you said you did that for all of your children, and I've accepted Christ. So I have the legal right to reckon that to that truth to my account. Now, here, let me just say this. A lot of folks in the positive confession faith movement use Romans 6.11 to teach that if you want something like healing or financial prosperity, what you need to do is reckon it to be true, they say. Because when you reckon it to be true, that will make it true. But you see, the word legitimai doesn't have anything to do with wishful thinking. It's not an activity that makes something come to pass or happen because you will it to be so. It is understanding and appropriating or actually acting upon something that is already true or has already happened. We would put it this way. You believing doesn't make it true. It's true. Now believe it is the idea behind that Greek word. In bookkeeping terms... It means recording in my ledger, listen, an amount that accurately corresponds to what exists in my account. Look, if I've only got 100 bucks in my checking account, 
but through wishful thinking, I write a thousand in the ledger. I mean, you know, I could be wishful thinking all day long. It's not going to make it true. And if I start writing checks against that imaginary amount, well, first of all, I'm going to get myself into some financial problems, but probably some legal hot water as well. You see, that isn't reckoning in the biblical sense. It isn't wishful thinking or even worse, self-deception masquerading as faith. To reckon means to put to your account what God has done or said is true. It's believing what God says is true is true for you, for your life. And when you believe that and reckon it to your account, guess what? The power of that truth is released into your life. See, this is the thing that we have to understand. When God says something in his word, that is a truth that you can reckon to your account. Now, once you believe it and you apply it to yourself personally, in other words, again, reckoning it to your account, and you start acting on that truth by faith, suddenly, through the power of the Spirit, the, the power of that truth begins to be released in your life. We see it all the time. How the people begin to step out in faith, and then God's power began to move. That's the way it always works. Paul is telling us here in Romans 6 that we are dead to sin and alive to God. And then commands us to go out and act on it now. I think the problem that more Christians are not really experiencing victory with regard to these principles, I think the problem is actually twofold. First, the Bible tells us that we died to sin once we got saved. It doesn't tell us that sin died to us. What do I mean? Well, victory for the Christian doesn't come automatically. We have to do certain things. Again, God promised Israel that everywhere the sole of their foot shall touch, I have given it to you. Chapter 1, right? Told Joshua that. But they still had to go in and fight the battles. They still had to go in by faith and, and you know, fight the enemy to actually take possession of that land. Just because God promises us things, doesn't mean we have nothing to do. Romans 6, Paul said you have to do four things to allow the truth of God in this context, or actually any context, where God promises you something. If you want it to be a reality in your life and the, that power of that truth to be released into your life, you've got to do four things. First of all, you've got to know, verses 3, 6, and 9, he tells us in Romans 6. What do I got to know? I got to know what God has said. How can I cling to a promise of God if I don't know what that promise is? Doesn't that correspond to the first point we brought out in preparation for entering the life of the Spirit? Cling to the promises of God. I can't do that unless I know what they are. That's why it's important to study God's Word. I've got to know what God has promised. Secondly, I've got to reckon it. In other words, apply it to my account by faith. Thirdly, I need to present myself, verse, I think, 13. Present myself to God as an instrument of righteousness. And then, at the end of chapter 6, and then I need to obey all that God has said. Now look, it's not enough to just know what God has promised and even reckon it to your account if you don't step out at one point and say, well, God, here I am. I'm presenting myself to you. I want these truths to become a reality in my life. Lord, here I am. Use me. So we have things that we need to do if we're going to really see the victory and blessings in our life. Secondly, though, listen, reckoning is a non-emotional experience. The reckoning the Bible talks about here is a non-emotional experience. In fact, we get our word logical from the Greek word legizomai. Let me say it again. Reckoning is a non-emotional experience. And we often use it as opposed to emotion, right? We say, oh, they're thinking logically now, not 
emotionally. See, those two concepts are really at other ends of the spectrum. But here's the deal. If we try to reckon a truth in God's word to our account, something that God said is true for us as believers, and we go ahead and we by faith reckon it to our account, and we don't feel anything happen, well, guess what? We often begin to doubt the validity of that truth. Satan has got us so bound with our feelings. Satan is the master of manipulating feelings. That's why it's so important that we love God with all of our minds and our hearts, as well as our soul, which is the seat of emotion. I'm not saying that we'd be robots. Of course God wants us to get excited about him and, and, and love him and, and feel love for him. But that comes after we you know, commit ourselves to him and obey him and so on. But see, the devil likes to manipulate our feelings. And so if we try to step out in faith and we don't feel anything right away, the devil says, see, this is just a bunch of baloney. Nothing's going to happen through this. And, he, and he, he kind of robs us then from the benefits of what God wants to do or what God has said because everything we've received from God comes by faith and not by feelings. So if you're waiting to feel things before you, as a confirmation God is working or whatever, you're going to stay in the wilderness a long time. Because the life of the Spirit is the life of faith. Not a life of emotions or feelings. I'm not saying that feelings will not be a part of it. But they can't be built upon feelings. This life of the Spirit won't happen. So reckon, guys, is really a faith word. That's a faith word. Now, what does Paul tell us that he wants us to reckon? Well, look at verse 11 again. He says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to notice that Paul here states a doctrinal principle that really dovetails with the, the principle that we're learning in Joshua through a type. This principle of them taking the stones, Joshua, from the wilderness side of the Jordan, putting them up in the Jordan Riverbed, and then 12 guys taking stones from the Jordan River and bringing them over into the promised land that signified one life was coming to an end, the life of the flesh. Another life was now about to begin, the life of the Spirit or the resurrection life. And, of course, at one point, as Joshua finished setting up those stones in the Jordan River, and all the people crossed over then into the Promised Land, God then removed his hand, the Jordan began to flow, covered those rocks, signifying that they were dead and buried, never to be resurrected again. God wants the old life dead and buried and never resurrected again. Now, just because you reckon this, I'm not saying that you're going to be immune from all sin and temptation from that point on. I'm not saying you're never going to sin again. I'm just saying this is the first step in the life of the Spirit is that you reckon the old life dead so that it's dead and buried. And from that point, you move forward. You're, the, the devil's still going to tempt you. But you see, the idea is that when you're dead to self, the Spirit of God gives you such grace. You know, you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh, Paul said. Let me just once again read verses 11 and 12, and we'll bring this to a close. What Paul said in Romans 6, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, now he's going to then make, he's going to, you know, draw from what he has just said. We could say, according to what you now know and believe to be true in your life, Paul says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. 
You can let sin take control of you again. See, when I say the old life is dead and buried, never to be resurrected again, I'm assuming you don't want to resurrect it. It doesn't mean you can't resurrect the old life if you want to. Because Paul did say, if once you're delivered from sin and you get involved with that sin again, it's going to take control of you again. Once you enter into the life of the Spirit, which, by the way, as we're going to see in a couple weeks, when you compare the life of the Spirit, the life they experienced in Canaan, with what they had experienced in the wilderness, folks, there is no comparison. I'm convinced once a Christian who has lived in the wilderness all their life spiritually finally begins to walk in the Spirit and taste what that life is all about, you're never going to want to go back to the old life. And the devil can't force you to. However, you can willingly submit if you want and go back. But let me just say this. Why if we've been freed? And, And I'm talking about Christians now who don't really want to go back to the old life. But hear me out. If we've been set free from the power of sin, as Paul tells us, why are so many Christians still in bondage to it? Good question. You know, why is it that so many Christians who love the Lord want to walk in victory, want to obey Him, but are still struggling and stumbling over the same old sins? Why is that if the Lord has set us free? Well, let me read you something from history that may give you a little insight into why that might be. All right? The author who wrote this said, and I quote, On New Year's Day, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation was publicly stated. And on December 18, 1865, the Constitution of the United States officially abolished slavery in our country. The word swept across Capitol Hill and down into the valleys of Virginia and the back roads of the Carolinas. It reached into the plantations of Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana. Headlines of newspapers in almost every city read, Slavery Legally Abolished. However, the author went on to say something happened that many would never have expected. He said, the vast majority of the slaves in the South who were legally freed continued to live on like slaves. Most of them went right on living as though nothing had happened. Though free, they virtually lived unchanged lives throughout the entire Reconstruction period. You know, many Christians are like those Civil War slaves. They have been emancipated. They have been set free from the bondage of Satan and sin by the greatest emancipator who's ever lived, Jesus Christ. And yet they continue to live under bondage. They continue to live like slaves. Either they have never been taught they've been set free, or they have not reckoned it to their account. You know, D.L. Moody, who was alive during the Civil War period, ministered to a lot of the guys at that time. D.L. Moody used to speak of an old black woman in the South following the Civil War. Being a former slave, she was confused about her status and asked, well, she asked Moody. She said, now, is I free or been I not? When I go to my old master, he says, I ain't free. And when I go to my own people, they say, I is. I don't know whether I'm free or not. Some people told me that Abraham Lincoln signed a proclamation, but master says he didn't. He didn't have any right to, end quote. Well, Of course, our old master, the devil, is going to tell us that we haven't been set free. Jesus Christ hasn't the authority or the power to do that. You've been mine all your life, the devil tries to tell us. Listen, don't listen to those lies. Know what God has said, believe, reckon it to your account, and act on what God has told you in his word, and you will be free indeed. If you continue in my word, Jesus said, You are my disciples truly, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you 
free. Just once more, Romans 6, this is this time verses 3 and 4 as we just wrap it up. Paul said, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the, de- from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, did you get that? That is all by faith, guys. That when I put my faith in Christ and identify with him, in some way I don't fully understand, because he was crucified, he was buried, and he rose from the dead, spiritually I am the beneficiary of all that too. And Paul says, because you were baptized into Christ Jesus, you are therefore baptized into his death, his burial, the old life, gone, and now you are raised with him in newness of life. Therefore, walk in that new life. Something you may not know. Just an interesting thing I dug out. We know from the Gospels that Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist at Bethabara. Bethabara literally means the place of passage. You see, it was at that place where the children of Israel under Joshua passed from the wilderness into the promised land. Interesting. Joshua led them from the wilderness into the promised land, right? Joshua is the Hebrew name, Yeshua. It's the same name as Jesus. Same name. One is the Hebrew, one is the Greek pronunciation. Our Joshua in the Old Testament, Joshua was a type of Christ, led his people at Bethabara, which later became Bethabara, from the wilderness into a new life. Interesting that Jesus picked that very spot. It was all all in the providence of God. Here's John baptizing at Bethabara. Jesus goes down there, and he is dipped backwards in the water, signifying the death and burial of one life, and when he comes up out of the water, it signifies a brand new life, right? Of course, that only symbolized a reality that would take place about three years later when he was actually crucified, buried, and literally rose from the dead. How do we enter into all of that? By faith. By faith. You see, it's only when you identify with Jesus by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection that you're going to be able to pass from the wilderness into the resurrection life. Listen, too many Christians are consumed with the how of victory. The how of victory. They're looking for secrets, methodologies, programs. Just give me a book, man. Give me a teaching. Give me a seminar. Give me a series I can listen to that will tell me how to be a victorious Christian. And and boy, the the bookshelves at Christian stores are filled with techniques and programs and methodologies that promise to catapult you, almost airlift you from the wilderness over into the promised land. You can't be airlifted from the wilderness life to the promised land life. You've got to go through the Jordan, which means the death of the old life. Too many Christians today are consumed with the how of victory. They're looking for secrets, methodologies, programs, anything that's going to give me victory. Not realizing that those things can't bring victory because victory is not found in a how, it's found in a who. The answer is not a program, it's a person. It's not how but him, Jesus Christ. Honestly, you want to walk in newness of life, you've got to do what Paul said, the life I've been crucified with Christ. 
It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The closer you draw to Jesus, the more you identify with him and abide in him, the more you're going to experience the victory, the life of the Spirit. Because it's a life of faith. And the more you abide in Christ, the more you're going to walk by faith. Remember what Paul said as he ended chapter 7 of Romans, which of course follows chapter 6, where he's talking about reckoning the old man, the old life dead. He talks about his own personal struggles with sin. He says, you know, the things I want to do, I don't seem to do. The things I don't want to do, those things I seem to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Anybody ever been there? I love the Lord. I want to live for the Lord. I want to do what's right. I want to obey his commandments. I really do. But I find I still sin all the time. I'm a wretched man, Paul said. Well, join the club, Paul. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He ends chapter 7 with verse 25. I thank my Lord. It's through Jesus Christ. He's the victory, guys. He's the you want to move from the life of the flesh into the life of the spirit. Start drawing close to Jesus. Yes, Understand what God has said to you. Reckon it to your account. Present yourself as an instrument of God for righteousness. Obey what he has said. But you know what? You can do all of that and not abide in Christ and still be very defeated. The secret is you're not going to do all those other things unless you're abiding in Christ. Because it's only through him that we, that we enter our Bethabara where we pass from the wilderness into the life of the Spirit. And we'll begin to look at all that that means next time. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you have opened a way for us where there is no way. First of all, you brought us out of Egypt, the world. You saved us. And then as we wandered in the wilderness for a time, until we got so sick and tired of that life, and we cried out to you, Lord, to do more in and through us. Well, then, Lord, as you began to lay upon our hearts the need for faith and just to trust you, as we abide in our Savior, Jesus Christ, a wonderful thing begins to happen. We begin to move from the life of carnality into the life of victory. It's all through faith, but through faith in the one who gained the victory, Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection. Give us grace, Father, to identify with our Savior, to abide in him daily, that we might know that new life, that resurrection life. Father, we thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.